At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We invite you to join us for our series, Overflow, From Him, Through Us, For All, as we explore Paul's letter to the Church of Corinth. Together, we'll focus our attention on the gifts of God and see that we're not meant to keep His blessings to ourselves, but to live as vessels of His abounding grace. Good morning. I'm Pastor Joel, one of the pastors here. Good morning to those of you who are joining us from your homes or wherever you are today. Uh, we're going to look at a church today. This, this song um, that Natalie and Daniel did, sometimes, by the way, the simplicity of a single voice and a piano can be so powerful in times of worship. I'm so thankful for that this morning. But we're going to look at a, a church, a group of believers that were walking through deep waters. They had very difficult circumstances. And yet we're going to see how the Lord provided and what he provided for them and it reminds me, leading up to Easter, I felt in my own heart and soul like I wanted to, to look and read about the life of Jesus. So he, we know his earthly ministry, always he had his eye on the cross. It was culminating in the cross and what he would do in giving his life. And, and so I began to read the Gospel of Luke because I thought, I just want to walk with Jesus as he traveled just a couple miles an hour at a time throughout that region of the world. And, and it's actually taken me a lot longer because I took time to journal through it. And I'm struck by a couple of things as I continue working through the Gospel of Luke. One is his mercy and his compassion. That was his heart toward people who suffered and were sinners. He he had a heart of compassion toward them. And I'm really renewed again by the posture of our Savior. And the second thing that has been a challenge to me personally is how he approached the world, this tangible physical world that we live in, and particularly the things of the world that so often trap our hearts, money, finances, possessions. And as I've read through Luke, he he includes some oft-quoted verses of Jesus, teachings of Jesus on the subject of money and possessions. And I just want to read a couple of these verses from Luke that I have been reading and also some of the other gospel writers. In Luke 12, 15, Jesus says, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness or greediness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And in that chapter, he goes on in verse 33 to say, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The gospel writer Matthew records Jesus saying this in Matthew 6, 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Matthew writes in 19.24, it's easier, this big hyperbole statement of Jesus, it's easier for a camel to go through this teeny tiny eye of a needle, my emphasis included, than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And then lastly, Mark 4.19, Jesus is talking about the good the, the way that, it, that our, our lives are fruitful. And he says, the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. You know, I've 
heard it said that Jesus says more about money and possessions than he does his combined recorded words on heaven and hell. And um, if you're anything like me, some of his words are downright uncomfortable that run contrary to, to my heart and where I would like and how I would like to live. And sermons about money can evoke some of you to feel guilty about not giving enough, some of you to feel guilty about spending too much, maybe some of you to just be frustrated that we're talking about it again. Why is the pastor always talking about money? And this morning we are kicking off a series, as Jill, Jill said, it's called Overflow, From Him, Through Us, To All. And wherever you are on your journey, our goal is not guilt and shame. That is never the way of Jesus to lead people into guilt and shame around this topic, but rather to bring you into a place of freedom and joy. Because did you know that when Jesus talks about money, he's not talking about money merely in financial ways, right? That's, a, that's an interesting way to look at it. Money's not just money, is it? I have a friend and a mentor who recently wrote a book on this topic, and he, he wrote this, Jesus talked about money, possessions, giving, in a way that made it a critical temperature gauge that reveals faith in God or lack thereof. So think about that. There is this connection between faith and finances and money and the heart, and Jesus continually visited these themes in his teaching he always zeroed in on the heart of his listeners or his readers for us this morning. And some of those re- verses that I read capture a very different life than the ones that we like to live, a very different life than the, sometimes the ones that we are trying to pursue and embrace here, the American dream that, that we would like to live. When my family and I moved to Farmington Hills, it's been about six years. This summer it will be six years. And I was struck by how much money there is in Metro Detroit. I, I didn't realize that where we lived before, you know, you hear Detroit and you think, oh, you know, the other side of the tracks or something. And while Detroit has certainly had, it, has it, had it, its, uh, its trials, this is a beautiful area to live in. I mean, there is stunning real estate. There are so many beautiful late model cars driving around. It's a feast to the eyes when you're sitting at a stoplight to see all these different cars, thanks in part to the influence of the auto industry here. I noticed the number of dry cleaners that there were and car washes, right? So that that indicates that people have some disposable income for such luxuries. And so hear me out, I'm not demonizing nice cars, I'm not demonizing nice houses, I'm not condemning cleaning establishments. Those are wonderful gifts to us. I've never even lived a mile and a half away from a Ferrari dealer, just up Orchard Lake Road. It's amazing, you drive by. I'm not a Ferrari guy, I'm not that type of guy, but I can still really look at it and say, whoa, look at that car. And, you know, getting a little closer to home for me, it's easy to stroll through Costco, to look around, justify, yes, I do need 300 of these. Sure, come into my cart, please. You know, I see my neighbor's backyards. I can, from my deck, I can look and I can see other people. And it's real easy, isn't it, to begin to look 
and compare with neighbors. It's, begin, it's, it's um, easy to, to begin to just live in, in a place of our, our, our means, our standard of living. You know, it, it's easy to pursue some things that ultimately our, our focus is turned inward. And I wonder, I wonder sometimes if Jesus lived in 2021 in Farmington Hills or in your community, what would that look like? Right? He's not going to be in a, in a robe and sandals walking around. I mean, he, he, he would live in, in 2021. So what, genuinely, what would it look like to live in the way of Jesus today? What would his life model for us in how he approached life here and I'm honestly still working this out in my own heart, my own life. I'm still wrestling through this, but we have been given a glimpse because of Scripture. We've been given glimpses of how Jesus lived 2,000 years ago, and it gives us some insight. Have you ever thought about Jesus as being the most generous person the world has ever known, bar none, most generous person? When you hear generosity and philanthropy, maybe you think of people like Bill and Melinda Gates and their big foundation. You think of Joan Crock, the, the wife of the McDonald's founder, and she's given, she gave away millions upon millions of dollars. And maybe you even think of the NBA superstar Shaquille O'Neal. I just read this week an article that tickled me. He overheard some guy, in, a random guy in a jewelry store uh, talking about his engagement ring payment plan, and he just paid it off for him. How great is that? He just paid off some random guy's bill. I mean, that, that's an example of philanthropy, of generosity. Now, Jesus didn't live with a bank account with lots of cash. He didn't just dole out money financially in a benevolent way. And yet, he was the epitome of generosity. He was the epitome of overflow. And he literally modeled generosity, both tangibly and spiritually. Remember what I talked about in Luke and how Jesus had mercy and compassion. So he was so open to people. He gave of his time, his attention, his words to people, particularly those who were poor and needy and hungry. He gave access to himself. He was approachable. He taught. He lived humanly with openness. And certainly spiritually, his invitation was to the kingdom of God and to the wealth that is the kingdom of God was open to all. So he modeled generosity to us. But Jesus knows that there is this connection in the human heart between finances and faith. We all pull that, feel that pull. And Jesus seeks to instruct us into the way and the truth of how we can live in a place of overflow. He invites us to a place of joy and freedom. Again, not guilt and shame, but a, a place of joy and freedom as we open up our hands and our lives and our resources. And you know what? As we do that, it indicates that the Spirit of God is doing something in our hearts. We tangibly start living differently as God changes us from the inside out. It's always a heart thing, remember. And we're no longer held quite so tightly by greed and fear and anxiety and greed and you name it. But rather, we can become, by God's Spirit, we can become people of abundance and overflow. 
And that's what we want to look at this morning as we begin our series. So we're diving into two chapters over the next number of weeks. We're diving into two chapters in 2 Corinthians, chapters 8 and 9. And I invite you, either with your Bible or one that's in a seat in front of you or on your device, if you would please join me in 2 Corinthians 8. And as you're making your way there, I want to uh, give just a little bit of context and, and background on this as we often do to help us to understand some things before we dive in. So it would be fair to say that Paul has a complicated relationship with the Corinthian church. If you've read 1 Corinthians, you know that he loves them, but he's having to address a lot of chaos, a lot of misbelief. So, I mean, they were believing things, that were wrong, they were treating people wrong, their worship gatherings were a mess, it was chaotic. And so he's just continually like, oh, I love you, but I gotta fix this. And so that, that's, his, that's uh, what he does in, in 1 Corinthians. And now in this second recorded letter, 2 Corinthians, Paul wrote to them to let, let them know, I'm coming to see you, right? So I'm gonna come again but he's also coming to defend, or he's writing to defend his role as an apostle. You see, the the, the Corinthians had latched onto some false teaching that challenged whether Paul was really an apostle. And so he's he's pushing back those false assertions. He's challenging them, and and he's writing to say, no, I really am an apostle of the Lord Jesus. But with this relationship that's in jeopardy with this church that he loves, the relationship is in jeopardy, but it also put the planned relief gift that they were going to take for the struggling Jerusalem church in question. So they had made a commitment to provide financially for struggling churches in Judea. And according to uh, 2 Corinthians 8.10, a year has passed. So essentially a year, they've dragged their feet and they haven't done anything. And so Paul is writing to them to motivate them to make good on the commitment. So why why the year? Why has a year passed? Why haven't they done it? Well, we don't know all the details and I don't want to steal Pastor Jacob's thunder when he preaches on this, but one commentator wrote, and this is such an indictment of a church, the low spiritual level of the church. When a church is not spiritual, it is not generous. The connection between heart and money, ever present. Now we know from Galatians 2 that Paul had made a commitment to care for the poor. Right? He was eager to care for the poor. That was part of his ministry. And so he really doesn't want the support for the Jerusalem church to dry up. That's why he's so eager for them to make good. And so he goes, he, he, he writes to them to address the motivation and the heart behind giving. Now, how? How did he do that? Did he use guilt? Did he guilt trip them into it? We all know a person in our life who defaults to the guilt trip. We know somebody else who may even have some passive aggressive comments. Don't you dare elbow somebody nearby you. You work that out over lunch. No. He doesn't use guilt, he doesn't use shame, he doesn't use duty. He goes deeper, he goes to the deeper motivations, the heart behind giving, and that's the gospel itself. He, he calls to their attention what is the truth of the gospel. Because if Paul 
can help them to see what they've received in Jesus, if he can help them to understand what God has done for them in Christ, then that's going to free up their hearts and their hands and their pocketbooks to give generously. And so that is our big idea this morning. Grace received is grace given. Grace received is grace given. And so we're going to look, how do we know a lot of background here, but how do we know that grace has been received in our lives? Well, the answer is overflow. It's the name of our series, Grace Overflows. We have an awareness that God's grace has been truly received and taken root in our hearts when it overflows into a life of generosity. And there's that connection between heart and and money again. And so we're going to look at three ways in our text today that grace is received, starting in 2 Corinthians. You got there before I did. So here we go. We want you to know, brothers or brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So first, grace overflows in our lives regardless of the circumstances. And Paul lays before the Corinthian church their sister churches in Macedonia, which is a region just north of Corinth, geographically. And you might recognize some of those cities. It would be Thessalonica, Philippi, Berea. Those were the cities of the, the, that made up the church of Macedonia, and so he's bringing them as an example and tells them God's grace has been given to the churches of Macedonia. Now, that's not a shocker for us church people. We recognize that spiritual blessing and spiritual life and anything God does is just an act of grace. We might define it as love or unmerited favor. It's all grace, right? And Paul uses the word grace in these two chapters that we'll be in for the next number of weeks, eight and nine, it's used 10 times. But in his vocabulary, it has a nuanced term, almost a play on words to connect in our minds the idea of grace and giving, as we'll see. And so you ask the question, what does God's grace has been given to the church in Macedonia? What is that referring to? What does that mean? Well, Paul describes grace or love given in a specific way. Because I just read, look at what he says about their circumstances. Hey, they're not on the up and up. Life is not good for them. Rather, verse 2 makes it clear that it's affliction or difficulty, but not just that. It's a severe trial. Now, we don't know what that was. But Paul makes it clear it was significant. And he even calls out their extreme poverty. So in spite of their circumstances and what they were walking through, the Macedonian churches abounded in abundance, i.e. wealth, of generosity. Now I hope you know this is not normal human behavior. If it were a math formula, severe trial plus extreme poverty does not equal abundance and overflow of generosity, right? That's not normal unless you're talking about God's math and his divine supernatural math does all sorts of crazy stuff. When you factor in grace and you factor in abounding joy, it says, that's when it produces, that's when it equals 
what the Macedonian church did, but it's the work of God. In the New Testament, David Garland in his commentary writes, in the New Testament, the Christian's experience of joy has no correlation to outward circumstances. Isn't that a bit of a paradox? You know, how can grace and joy and abundance and trial and poverty, how do all those go together? Grace. It is all grace. And even in their extreme poverty, the Macedonian believers knew that all they had was grace from God. They received that. They knew that Jesus' divine love and mercy on them caused them to worship him, to lean into him, and to tangibly demonstrate that by the overflow of their life. And that grace kept abounding. There was so much grace that it produced an abundance. Their circumstances were secondary. It was grace and joy and love that resulted in their abundant giving. And man, isn't that the, how the gospel comes to us? Not in a moment of triumph and victory, but in a severe test of affliction, as Paul wrote here in 2 Corinthians 8. A severe test of affliction and extreme poverty. You know, Jesus didn't live on this life, live on this earth to win righteousness for us in his comfort and, and grandeur and ease. Jesus was not having his best life now when he experienced Good Friday. We know that the cross represents pain, physical pain, spiritual and emotional pain for Jesus, suffering, sacrifice, death. That was not his best life now. He's, he didn't have anywhere to lay his head, we know that the Gospels tell us. So he was not living it up here. It was rather in affliction. We know that Romans 5.8 tells us God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, we experienced extreme poverty, didn't we? Spiritually speaking, extreme poverty. Christ died for us. And you know, when we think about generosity, usually we've got the shoe on the wrong foot. We've got it backwards. We believe that our generosity is dependent upon our circumstances. That changes things for us. So we therefore modulate our generosity on how our life is going. So if we're feeling pretty good, hey, let's do 20% on our tip today, not 15% for the server. They did a great job and I'm feeling generous. I'm going to drop something on the giving box on my way out of church. I know my neighbor has been suffering and struggling, and so let me just, let me help him out a little bit. But when life isn't so good, we didn't get the tax return we wanted, we didn't get the promotion we were expecting, or some other life circumstance has us in a, in a bit of a, a pinch. No, I think I'm going to just hold on to this. I probably need it a little bit more. But that's not the way of Jesus, and that's not what we see here from the Macedonian church. When we see the true nature of grace and have truly received, we've embraced grace and it's taken root in us, we'll see it overflow in our lives regardless of the feelings or circumstances. Warren Wearsby is a pastor and a professor. I really respect him. I love his writings. And he says, when you have experienced the grace of God in your life, you will not use difficult circumstances as an excuse 
for not giving? Don't answer these questions out loud. But every month when you get your bank statement, your, your checking, your debit card, your, your credit card, if you were to look through it, does it reflect grace received is grace given? Does it reflect an overflow? Do you live with open hands, open heart, open wallet to help build God's kingdom? because of what he's been building in your own life. We saw that grace received overflows regardless of our circumstances from the Macedonian church, but we're going to continue looking at their example, and we know that we have received God's grace when it overflows beyond its limitations. So we're going to look again at, uh, pick it up at verse 3. For they, the Macedonians, gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. So Paul continues to describe the overflow, the outworking of grace in their lives and how it affected their attitudes and then their action of giving. And Paul says that they gave in two ways. First, they gave according to their means. So they gave maybe what was in their power to do. So they looked at it and they said, you know what, we can, we've got some money and so we can put it toward, toward this. But then the second way they gave speaks to a deeper form of generosity. Paul's assessment is these people were giving above what they rightly should have given, above and beyond because of their love for God. And even their desire, so not just their their action, but their attitude reflected overflow. Look at, their, look at the, uh, their attitude. Paul was not writing to remind the Macedonian church. He wasn't coercing them. No, he was using their example of giving for the Corinthians. He needed to remind the Corinthians. And so he's pointing to, hey, look at the Macedonian church. They're in a hot mess right now. I don't know what they're walking through, but it's difficult. And look at their eagerness to participate Look at their love. They were pleading to give. They were so eager as they themselves were struggling and suffering. They were so eager to bless and benefit others who were struggling in Jerusalem. And I'll tell you what, these are the people I want to be around. Wouldn't you love to sit down and be around these kind of people that even despite the difficulty of what they're facing, they're overflowing in love and concern and action for other people, even though they didn't have much to offer. In both their act of giving and their desire to give, what was exposed? Grace. Grace had taken root in their heart and it overflowed the limitations of what they have. And I'm reminded of Luke 21. Jesus tells a story of looking up and seeing rich people put their money in the offering box. And then he writes, and then he talks about seeing a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And Jesus said, truly I tell you this, the poor widow has put in more than them all because they contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had. Luke 21, 1 through 4. And again, we have to look back at the source of grace, and that is Jesus himself. His grace for us was not limited. It knew no limits. It was exhaustive. 
It was overwhelming. He held nothing back and he gave freely for us all of himself. Every last drop of blood, he gave his life for us. Romans 8.32 reminds us that this is the nature of our God. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up, up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You know, the sad reality is that research has borne out the evangelical Christians are no different in their giving than the world. It doesn't appear that grace has leaped any bounds or, or that it's uh, experienced beyond the limitations because we're so underdeveloped. We're underdiscipled in the way of Jesus as it relates to money and giving. We are. A friend shared this illustration with me. It's really stuck stuck with me. If somebody came in this week and handed to Pastor Jacob or to me a check of a hundred million dollars and then left, we'd have a little hallelujah praise break. (laughs) Um, And then we might be tempted to say, wow, that's going to cover Woodside's operating expenses for several years, all of Woodside, several years and then some. Praise Jesus. That releases the pressure for us to talk about money. We don't have to worry about the number in the bulletin. We don't have to we don't have to, we're, we're taken care of, right? Right? No, wrong, my friend said. That would be committing theological and ministry malpractice. Because it's not about whether the church has or does not have money. It's the posture of the heart. It gets to the heart of the matter. And As one who cares about shepherding your hearts and mine in the way of Jesus, I can't gloss over the fact that giving to build the kingdom of God. So when Jesus left, he sent his disciples, make disciples. They gathered in small groups in communities. That birthed the church, which spread the world over and is still the plan. There is no plan B. It is the plan. So giving to build God's kingdom, that is the local church, is the way that we see your life and spiritual formation played out. Does the grace of God overflow into your action? That is how God manifests his grace in your life, is through the church. And so has the Spirit of God captured your heart? Does your attitude and your action reflect that grace has captured your heart and motivated you? Grace received is grace given. And in these final two verses that we're going to read this morning from 2 Corinthians 8, we know that grace has been received when it overflows in giving of yourself. So we'll finish out with verses 5 and 6. And this, so he's talking about the giving, and this not as we expected, But they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so should he complete among you this act of grace. So these verses are showing the surprise in giving. Paul was genuinely surprised by their giving and their abundance and their desire. It shocked him. He said, it's not as we expected. So probably he and and the leaders or the missionaries, whoever was, uh, was with him, probably looked at the Macedonian church and they said, okay, well, they've got a little, 
So we can probably expect a little bit from them, but we're going to keep our expectations low. But they knocked the socks off of them. Totally. I mean, they just, well, they didn't wear socks back then, sandals. That's another time. But they, they just wowed Paul with the overflow and the generosity of their gift despite their affliction, despite their, their poverty. And how did that happen? Grace. It's all grace. And you know what else Paul said that they gave? It wasn't just dollar bills. It wasn't just money. They gave themselves. First to the Lord. The giving, the giving of their lives was first and foremost to their heavenly Father. And it always is the vertical giving that has to come first. We give our lives fully to the Lord. We yield ourselves because of the grace that he's given us. If we start on the horizontal and we do this giving, it can lead to Pharisaism. It can lead to, to being a hypocrite, to doing it for show, for doing it for duty. But when we start by giving our lives to our Heavenly Father because of what he's given to us, that is the right order. That is the prerequisite to sacrificial self-giving, is yielding to the Father. And so because these Macedonian believers gave themselves to the Lord, they were free to open up their hands, their wallets, their whole lives to say, God, whatever you need for the good of the whole church. And I'm reminded that Paul talks about the body being connected in union with one another. In 1 Corinthians 12, one part of the body suffering is shared by another. And that's just playing this out. Their financial giving was only the outward manifestation of a deeper giving, just the tip of the iceberg. And Paul wants to spur the Corinthians. Remember, he's writing to remind them to make good on their gift, and he wants to spur them on to the same type of generosity and grace. And we know from 1 Corinthians, they were abounding in gifts of the Spirit, all right? Like he, he gave them some guidance on the gifts of the Spirit. So they had the gifts of the Spirit, but they had not received and really lived in light of the grace of the Spirit. And that's what he sought to correct them. He sought to, to shepherd them in that. And so he shares about the Macedonians and God's overflow in their life and how, and he, and he uses this as an example to them. And he says there at the very end of verse 6, he gets, Timoth, he, excuse me, he gets Titus involved. And Titus had come to Christ under Paul's ministry and Paul said, hey, I've got a specific job for you. Go to Corinth and make good on this. this. Like, get started again, this act of grace. And that's the third time in these six verses that he calls it grace. It was the grace of God that motivated the Macedonians to give regardless of their circumstances. It was grace that allowed them to experience it beyond the limitations. And now it's grace in, in partaking in, in the, the, uh, their lives, giving of their lives. It's not just money here, it's their lives. And if the Corinthians would just experience the grace of God in their lives, then they would express it by caring for another church, churches helping churches. And we have to see, again, Jesus. It was Jesus who modeled that kind of generosity and so if we seek to follow in the way of Jesus, we have to look at our own hearts. Are we living that way? 
Remember, Jesus had a whole host of angels at his disposal that he could have sent. But he didn't send a surrogate, did he? He sent himself. The Godhead himself took on flesh to come to earth. He didn't just write a cash gift, Amanda. The the storehouses of heaven are full to overflowing. There'll never be any limits. He could have just written something. He could have written a check and a cash gift and taken care of our need, but no. He modeled overflow of grace and generosity by giving himself, his own blood. And you know what? He gave himself first to the will of his father. Isn't that the model we're to follow? He gave himself first to his father and then to the body, then to us. Paul reflects in 1 Timothy 2, 5, and he says this, there is one God, there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. And so that begs the question this morning, are you a recipient of his grace? Do you know in your heart of hearts that he has given himself to you? He's given you freedom and salvation. He's given you grace upon grace, everything you need. Is this your story? Have you seen your need because of your sin? Maybe the greed that's in your own heart? And have you seen that Jesus came and he gave himself for you on the cross? He gave himself as a gift. Have you repented? Have you placed your faith in in Jesus? If that's something you haven't done yet, please note that it's a gift. It's not something that you can earn. No way you can do it yourself. God is the benevolent one in this act. For those of you who have received grace, is it overflowing? If not, there's grace for that. Look to Jesus. Let your eyes, your gaze be on Jesus. Fix the eyes of your heart on him and his work for you. Maybe for you it's picking a gospel and going through it verse by verse with a journal and recording the grace that is yours because of the life that he lived and what he made available to you. That's been so helpful to me over the last month or so. Look at the cross. He gave himself completely, exhaustively, fully and finally. Didn't hold it back. Gave everything that he had for you. If you look at Jesus, you really look at him and his grace and believe that it's for you, then his spirit is going to do something in your heart and it will tangibly look like overflow. Cheerful givers, as we'll hear about, there's a difference between being an earnest giver and, a, and one who, who gives under compulsion. God desires for you to earnestly live in a place of grace and love for other people in his church and to be part of that. In the quietness of this moment, my generous and heavenly Father, I ask that your spirit move in my heart and our church's heart to say, I'm yours. Everything we have, our our intellect, our abilities, our relationships, yeah, even our money, 
I'm yours. It's all yours because of your overflowing grace in my life. God, would you stir in our hearts that whatever you need for your glory and the advancement of your kingdom, it's yours. Father, would you keep us from holding spaces and things in our lives that are off limits to you, off limits to your church? We know that you held nothing back for us. You gave so freely in love and grace, and we want to give our whole lives to honor you, Lord. You've brought us from death to life. You're doing something in us. We are your representatives on this earth, and so we want to live well and be agents of reconciliation and grace and overflow. And I pray all this for the beautiful name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.